I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week are substance use disorders and overdose deaths in Canada, and the moralizing that goes along with them. Canada, as well as many other countries, is in the midst of an increase in opioid and stimulant-related harms. And part of this is related to the increased toxicity of the drug supply. This is particularly related to fentanyl, which is increasingly added to street drugs to increase their potency. But it is also a very dangerous substance that can be lethal in small doses. And over the past decade, the number of individuals who have been harmed by opioid toxicity has greatly increased in this country. Between January 2016 and March of 2022, Health Canada has estimated that just over 30,000 individuals have died as a result of opioid toxicity and overdoses, with the majority of those being men between the ages of 20 and 49. And just this year alone, Health Canada estimates that 85% of all opioid toxicity deaths involved fentanyl and 81% involved opioids that were non-pharmaceutical. So as the toxicity of the supply increases, the harms that come along with that are felt in communities all across the country. And as the ramifications of this are increasingly felt, there are more and more debates about how to best address these issues. And what often happens is a moralizing on the part of policymakers and journalists as they assess this issue, that they present substance use disorders as a moral failing. And the result is that there are not sufficient programs in place to ensure that individuals have the tools that they need to address their substance use disorders. And these can range from anything from effective intervention programs, uh, rehabilitation programs, mental health supports, as well as the physical care that goes along with detox, as well as things like safe supply to prevent overdose deaths. There are also shortcomings in programs for friends and family members of those who are going through substance use disorders in order to create a community of support. And one way that we as Canadians can come together to provide support is to hear the stories of those with substance use disorders. And one such story comes from Tara McGuire, a journalist from Vancouver whose son Holden passed away from an accidental opioid overdose. And she has written his story in a new book entitled Holden After and Before, Love Letter for a Son Lost to Overdose. And in this book, which is a mix of fiction and fact, Tara McGuire goes back to her son's life, uh, talks with his friends, and revisits what was going on in his life, as well as what was going on in her life, to create a beautiful memoir that explores the complexity of substance use disorders. And in the book, McGuire really humanizes Holden's story. It's no longer what for many people might be a statistic of an 
overdose death, and in doing so tries to reconcile with the unthinkable tragedy of a parent having to bury their child. And in going through the book, one thing that really stood out to me was the reality that individuals who are going through substance use disorders and their families and their friends are people in our communities, that these are not issues that are specific or limited to individuals or families, that these are very much community-related and require community response. And one step in that process is humanization, that the demonizing individuals who use opioids or other substances does not address the underlying issues. And a more fulsome approach is required, and that starts with humanizing and creating support for one another. So I was pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Tara McGuire about her son Holden and about the book. So let's get right in to that conversation. All right. And Tara McGuire joins me now from North Vancouver. Tara, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here to talk about the book. As I said in the intro, Holden After and Before, Love Letter for a Son Lost to Overdose. So Tara, let's get uh, right into it. And uh, before we get into some of the the larger issues at play here, do you want to just talk about your son? Uh, who, who was he? What kind of a what kind of a guy was he? And uh, and what what are some of those memories for you when you think think back on his life? Oh, thank you for asking. Holden was just an original person. He was so unique. He was very funny, very intelligent, really sensitive, um, and pretending to be tough. He was a great brother, a really good friend, a musician a writer and a graffiti artist. He was just a, just a really excellent human. <laughs> and, uh, and, and your love for him too comes through very clearly uh, when you go through the book and, and, and you get a sense of, of who he was. And uh, for you, revisiting his life in, in the form of the book, uh, how did you approach that? Because you know, one of the things that, that parents who have gone through what, what you've gone through talk about is just the, the, pure tragedy of it. Uh, No parent wants to obviously go through uh, that situation. So for you coming back to it in a position where you're going to start to write this book, how how did you mentally approach that process? It was tough. Um, It's been, it took me about six years to write the book. Holden died in 2015. So it's been seven years. And I started initially with a few poems and just essays about how I was feeling. Um, And then as I learned more about writing and about craft, the structure of the book started to kind of develop. But really, it just meant a lot of time thinking about Holden and what had happened and kind of projecting myself into those moments with him. So it was actually a pretty painful experience. A lot of people say, oh, you know, it must have been so cathartic. And I want to say, no, it sucked a great deal of the time, but I still felt compelled to do it. In the book, it's it, it really is sort of a process of you trying to understand what Holden was going through as he struggled with his addiction. So how did you initially think of this project for you in terms of trying to understand things 
from his perspective uh, while he was alive, while he was struggling? Yeah, I had a lot of preconceived ideas about what substance use disorders meant. Even the language that I used when I started writing the book was a lot different than the language I would use now in terms of what it means to struggle with addiction or substance use disorder, as it's called now, because of the negative connotation of the word addiction. So I had to ask myself a lot of questions and be prepared to wait for the answers, which were not always pleasant. Um, I, I explored a lot of my own failings and the ways that society failed Holden uh, the way that he failed himself just because he wasn't able to be honest with himself about what was going on, um, his friends, all of that. And I hope that I've learned a lot through it and can now be a little more, a little less judgmental and more compassionate. You mentioned his friends. So this obviously wasn't just a process for you to to go through and revisit. You included a lot of other people in that. And, and how did you approach those individuals? And did you find any resistance from other people who may not have been ready themselves to talk about it, process these issues, uh, or just even, as we'll talk about later, when we talk uh, about things like criminalization, these sorts of issues, did, did you run into any resistance on that front? Yeah, you know, initially, everyone was in shock. Um, a lot of Holden's friends uh, have become my friends. I hope they feel the same way about me. You know, they were very, very helpful with helping me to learn things I didn't know about Holden. And um, in the book, you know, Sean, it's a mix of memoir and fiction. And all of the scenes with Holden's friends, their their identities have hopefully been obscured. I mean, they all know who they are, but hopefully right. other people won't know who they are. <laughs> And a lot of them took the time to sit with me and tell me about my son and a lot of the things that I didn't know. Um, in the book, you find out that I was away for the last year of his life traveling. So I really missed a lot of the struggle. Um, some people didn't want to be in the book, and I hope I've been respectful enough to remove them, but still keep the narrative connected. You mentioned that part too of, of learning about your son and it's it's something that's interesting in, in various aspects of my own life. You think of like, what do my parents not know about me? And what like in general, what would parents not know about their own children? And is it was it almost a sense for you in like you were in, in a sense getting to know him again? Uh, from a, obviously a very different perspective. And you, you mentioned things that you may have missed, but just in, in general, just sort of a, a personality or a person who you didn't know when he was alive. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there's a lot we don't know even about people who maybe live with us. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of of people's interior lives that we just never have access to. And I spent a lot of time with some of his friends. You know, they took me to places where they had been together. Um, I went to nightclubs where he used to go to listen to music. I went to places he used to live and spent a lot of time there. So I, I think I kind of deluded myself into thinking that I was sharing experiences that he had already shared by being in those places and speaking with those people. And I wanted to make it very clear to them too, that, that um, to Holden's friends, that they didn't have to 
protect him anymore. Like they could just tell me the truth about what had happened. So, you know, some of them were able to be really frank about some of the scary things that had gone on too. So as you are learning more and more about his life, his, his story in pursuit of this project, at what point did you make the decision to craft the book the way it is written? As you mentioned, part memoir, there's part fiction, there's, a, a, there's part of it is from Holden's perspective. And so you have a, a variety of, of writing approaches here. Uh, how did that decision get made? Was it something that just organically uh, came to you or, or was that a conscious choice going in? I've rewritten this book many times. Um, <laughs> the first time I tried to write it uh, just from Holden's point of view, I just tried to write it in his voice, like, this is me, this is what happened. And I took a lot of writing classes and different forms of education in the writer's studio at Simon Fraser University. And then I went on and did um a master's program at the UBC School of Creative Writing. So through that, I realized from different mentors and incredibly generous faculty that that sort of first person take really wasn't working. It didn't sound authentically like him. It sounded like somewhat, somebody said to me, it sounded like you've got your hand up the back of his shirt, you know, like trying to be a ventriloquist. And so I realized that I had to shift and write it more from my point of view, but kind of use, I guess, evidence-based jumping off points to jump into fiction, whether that was a photograph or a conversation with somebody or, you know, a text thread that I'd read on his phone or, or anything like that. Like I, I framed the questions from my point of view. And then when I jumped into the fictional parts where Holden was alive and walking around and I, I never was, I had to base it on some kind of factual evidence. So in that way, it's kind of documentary and it's a gray area. Put it that way, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it, it makes it the book itself. It it makes it a really interesting experience to to go through it because you do get as the reader those different point of views, that different perspective, and you you get a. I don't want to say it better because it sounds sort of judgmental to other things, but a, a good sense of his perspective, what he may have been going through at the time, while also getting your sensibility in it as well. It, it comes across as, if I could use this term, a very human portrayal of what he was going through. And and that's kind of how I imagine that's what you were going for. And, and the ultimate goal is, is obviously he was a, a person and you want the humanity in the story. Yeah, that's interesting. I One of the, I mean, it's been through a lot of different iterations of the title as well. Uh, one of the first titles was Between Him and Me. And I kind of wanted mm-hmm. it just to be a conversation between the two of us, like me saying, you know, what happened? Like, how did you feel about being a teenager and living with a step parent and then him answering? But I ended up creating scenes of, of those responses. So I hope that it moves in a way that people feel it's not appropriating him. Like, I hope you felt it was very obvious that I'm making stuff up about Holden, but that there is some narrative truth in that these you know, he got from from point A to point B, and how he got there is filled with with different possibilities. And I tried to explore those possibilities. It's it certainly that is how it comes across in the book. And one of the things that becomes apparent as a reader of the book is that 
as you you talk about substance abuse uh, or addiction and and these issues that there's no universal reason why it happens. There's no singular cause. If there was, maybe we'd be better at dealing with it as a society, uh, but we're not. So uh, for, for you, how much of the motivation of the book was obviously there's there's Holden and, and his story, but the fact that thousands of other families have uh, unfortunately had to go through this. Uh, it's opioids are, are still an issue in Canada today. You know, how much of the motivation for telling this story was to address the broader societal issues that are going on? I just read a stat yesterday. It's almost 30,000 uh, opioid deaths in Canada since 2016. And, and I don't think wow. that's even an up-to-date number. So when I started thinking about how many people are suffering in the same way that I did and all the rest of Holden's family and his friends, like that represents hundreds of thousands of people who are sitting around wondering what happened. You know, why did this happen? And you're right, there's no answer, but there are a lot of factors that come together. And I think a lot of people will recognize themselves or their friends or their loved ones in the factors that I explore, you know, um, mental health, obviously, divorce, living in a world that the future doesn't look all that bright, you know, living in a very expensive city, trying to be an artist, trying to be a creative person in a in a corporate world, you know, all of those kinds of issues were interesting to me. So I tried to approach them from an exploration point of view. And I hope that all of those people who are touched in some way will see themselves or people they know in parts of the book and maybe feel like they're not quite so alone. You, you get the sense too that uh, for families, right? You, you mentioned the the families and, and friends of, of individuals. We talked about Holden's uh, friends and your approach with them, but Holden too with siblings and uh, the rest of your extended family. In that sense too, how, how much of the discussion leading into it and throughout the project with the rest of the immediate family and extended family uh, related to their experience, but also providing that resource or, or, or something for other families out there uh, to let them know that they're not alone. Family's tough. You know, they, um, like my husband, Cam is in the book a lot, Holden's sister, Lila, neither of them have read the book. They, they both have said, you know, we were there. We remember, we have our own memories of Holden and they've been really supportive in my journey to write the book, but for them, they're not quite ready to read it yet. And I said, you know, you guys, you are in here. You might want to have a look before it goes to print, because if there's anything in there that you don't like, you right, know, this yeah. is your shot. And they both, and they both said, um, you know, we trust you. It's probably not going to be the way we remember it. They, they know that memory is fallible and they'll have a different view on how things went in some cases, but that's art, you know, like that's kind of everyone is entitled to their own impression and their own memories and uh, memory is definitely not accurate. So we'll call it an abstract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, did you reach out in, in this process too of, of with any of the other families? Obviously it's a book about Holden and, and that experience, but 
certainly, as you mentioned, the, the thousands of other families who have gone through this is in the, the fictional part or even in the memoir part. Uh, was there any use of resources that are available to families who have gone through similar experiences? I'm not a member of Mom Stops the Harm, but I'm familiar with the organization and I've spoken with several of the members and used those resources. You don't have to look very far to find impacts in every community around the opioid crisis. I um, spent some time at Vancouver's Overdose Prevention Society with Sarah Blythe down there and you know, did research into how how it looks to smoke heroin, why people, why, you know, talk to people, ask them why, why they use it, what does it do for them, why did they initially start using it, why do they still use it. Um, I talked to people who have recovered, you know, there's some of Holden's friends in the book who were not in good shape at the time who are doing fantastically well now. So I think it's been a kind of an evolution for a lot of the people who and, and some of the composite characters in the book, they have been really helpful. And I've done a lot of therapy, Sean. I've done a lot of therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and you mentioned too a little earlier, part of that journey and and thinking about his story and, and what comes of it moving forward uh, was the stigma associated with uh, these issues, both for uh, individuals themselves and for family members. Uh, this might be an unfair way to for me to phrase this, but uh, is there one thing that really stands out to you as, as something that changed your thinking? Because you mentioned like some of the, the vocabulary that you would have used at the start of this project versus now is different. Uh, but is, is there one thing or a couple things that really surprised you or, or stand out to you when we talk about the stigma or just the, the societal approach or thinking towards some of these issues? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just the level of compassion. And I always kind of felt like that was those people or other people, mm. you know, and that didn't really have an effect. I was, I was sympathetic, but I wasn't empathetic because I did not think it would ever be something that would be directly connected to me with zero degrees of separation. And now I realize that I'm exactly the same. It's all of us. And the way that we approach people who use drugs, it's it's like, it's the worst, it's the, it's the worst thing you can think of a person almost in society is to be a drug addict. You know, that is a bad person. And I don't see it that way anymore at all. I think that's probably been the biggest shift in me. I see people who use substances as people with illnesses who need help, whether they're medicating themselves um, through emotional pain or physical pain in, in many circumstances. It's, of course, disproportionately affecting people who are on the margins of society in a variety of ways. And I just feel so much compassion. And now when I walk downtown in Vancouver, you know, we have a, we have an immense problem. And now when I walk down, I'm not afraid. Now I make eye contact. I say hello. I ask people how they are doing. I treat them as people. And I think that's been the biggest shift for me is that I just thought that it was something else that, that was so disconnected from me. And now I see that it really isn't. Yeah, because it really is all of us, right? Like in, in some way, like these are broad societal issues. And as you say, with 30,000 individuals since 2016, and that might be an underrepresentation of the actual number, 
that really does touch everybody in some way. And there is, these are like, it's, it's a human problem. Like we're, we're all living in communities together. Uh, so, so the issues do touch all of us in some way. But one of the things that I, I do wonder about is, and we, we've talked about this on the show before. I remember when I was 12 years old in an assembly for dare, right. And, and the messaging was, oh, yeah. Right. Don't don't yeah. start like marijuana leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And, and ultimately, uh, in every single one of those videos ends in either uh, like a, a graveyard or, or something like that. Right. Like the, the messaging that I got when I was 12, 13 years old, that that's what it is. And to a certain extent, it, it's taken me a long time to break out of that. Uh, because, you know, that's that's what was just hit into me for so long. So for a lot of folks, I think one of the questions is how do we help? Like what is one like what is something that I can do on an individual level that would would help with the backdrop of I was just told my whole life not to start. And if you start, you're a bad person. Right. So like that, that to me is like a, a bit of a vicious cycle uh, in, in terms of what do we do? So, you know, in, in terms of trying to encourage people to be empathetic and, and to get involved, how do we as a community try to work together to help people overcome maybe those initial hurdles that they might have? Yeah, I think that's the intersection we're at. I think that it's clear we have an enormous level of unmet mental health needs. And I think if if I could like reverse engineer it. I think that when, you know, Holden started drinking alcohol in high school. So did I, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. He started smoking pot in high school. So did I, I was like, okay, normal. Um, but you know, you get to a point where it's not normal. It's clearly affecting relationships and there's hiding and there's suffering. And I think at that point, rather than be punitive what I could have said is, why are you doing this? You know, what, what is it that is causing you so much pain that you need, you feel you need to do this every day to feel okay. Um, and I think that's what most people who use substances are doing. They're trying to feel better, whether it's a couple glasses of wine after work or even a coffee to get going like the in the morning these are all substances that we are all using to try and feel better in some way mm -hmm. some are less dangerous some are more dangerous of course now with the toxic drug supply they're extremely dangerous but i think when we understand that people are using substances as a form of medicine to help them feel better if we can kind of back up a bit and say, okay, why are you trying to feel better? What is it that's bothering you? You know, and just provide resources in that area. Um, mental health supports. Being a teenager is rough. I mean, it was rough when I was a teenager, but we didn't have nearly as much to worry about. We did not have these catastrophic problems and everybody knows what they are. <laughs> so I don't have to say that, but I think what we need to be able to do is address the fact that people are suffering, they are people are struggling, and be able to talk about it and have it be okay. Most of the people who are dying are young men and older men, men between 20 and 40 predominantly it, it, are dying. And they're using substances for, for reasons that they could maybe explain to you. 
you know, or explain to someone who's trained to help them with it. I don't think anyone intentionally sets out to be an addict or to overdose. Of course not. They're just doing what they can to try and feel better. You see it too with some of the, I don't know how well these stats have been done. Maybe they're all anecdotal, but of these problems being exacerbated over the past couple of years uh, with the pandemic and the idea of people seeking out something uh, to make them, to make them feel good or feel better and obviously very difficult trying circumstances. Or numb, numb, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, Just sort of, yeah, numb out the pain. And you, you do, you do see these issues and it does seem to me that it gets exacerbated in ways that you would, a lot of people think are benign when you think of, as you mentioned, oh, we'll go for a glass of wine or, or a beer after work. Uh, you just have like a social drink that for somebody, okay, you can go have a social drink, but other people can't. And it, it leads uh, to larger issues. And the comparison or, or we, there was a, one episode that we did a long time ago. We talked about you know alcohol versus coffee, and the idea that these are essentially both uh, things that can be addictive to you and co- and make people have like a, a reaction. There's a, a chemical reaction in your brain, and I, I do wonder sometimes when we think about substances in terms of just what we have as a society deemed are acceptable and not acceptable. Uh, and sometimes it just seems very arbitrary, uh, sort of acceptability versus not acceptable. And when I we think about these stories, it, it has really significant real world impact. And the issue of criminalization, of course, comes up with that subject. So when we talk about criminalization and the issues associated with that, there seems to be a push to increase criminalization. There's also a move to completely decriminalize drugs. But where would you land on this? And how do you think Holden's story can help inform people who are trying to learn more about these issues themselves and come to some sort of a a place where they can feel more informed on questions surrounding criminalization. Yeah, there are a lot of great books that I've read recently that have helped me to see that this sort of um, war on drugs situation is is really not working. It, it, it truly is not working. This prohibition idea that if you just make it illegal, it'll go away. It, it, it didn't work with alcohol. It's, it doesn't, it didn't work with cigarettes. It's not working. And the, problem with opioids is that people die instantly um, because of the tainted supply. The reason that the that fentanyl and carfentanyl and those extremely toxic additives are on the street now is largely because of prohibition. Based on the research that I've read, making it harder to import heroin has created labs where these substances can be made very easily in very small batches. So it's, it's, um, it's a super complex issue. I don't actually feel equipped to really discuss it, except to say that I hope Holden's story will help widen the dialogue on safe supply. Like Holden wasn't even at a place where he was ready to admit that he had a substance use disorder. He had admitted it to maybe healthcare professionals, but not to anyone in our family who could have helped him. 
but I think he was getting there. And I think one of the reasons he couldn't talk to us about it is because it's a bad thing. And if, and if this story can help people realize that it's not a bad thing, it's a signal of, of a health problem. And if we can repackage it and reform how we think about it, then maybe younger people who are coming up now and struggling could come forward and say, you know, I'm in trouble. I started doing this. I don't even know why I started with my friends or I started at a party or I started it because I had a a back injury and now I can't stop. You know, if Holden had been able to come to me and say that, and I think he was so close, you know, I think he was almost there. He might still be here. I don't know that nobody can ever know that, but I, w- I would like for people moving forward, once they realize they're in a place that is dangerous for them, to be able to go to someone they trust and say, I'm having a problem. I think I'm, I have a substance use disorder. I need help. And to be granted that help instantly. And that's where there's a break in the chain. People can come to the realization that they need help. Our rehab system is awful. You know, I've had to try help friends through it and, oh, you can't come in here until you've been clean for two weeks. How is a person supposed to do that with no support, no money, no resources? Like it's virtually impossible. And the cost, the cost of rehab is, I think it's preying on people. So my hope is that we can find resources more easily and be able to just have more open conversations more easily without judgment. And where people, yeah, as you say, can come and open to someone who's close to them. And I think that's where this book, uh, for as much as when the, the press release was sent to me, it talked about it's it's great for families or, or individuals who are uh, related to people who are who have substance use disorders. No, this, this is a book that anybody can read and, and benefit from because anybody in your life could potentially be going through something and uh, you could be that person for them. And hearing stories like this can allow you or put you in a better position to be empathetic and provide the non-judgmental support that that individual needs. So for as much as this book, obviously it is Holden and his story is, as told through you, uh, I think there's a, a really broader cultural and societal value to it that, that I think anybody uh, would, would get a lot out of this. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. I hope it's true. Yeah. Well, I, I think it is. And certainly we will encourage everybody to check it out. So again, it's Holden after and before love letter for a son lost to overdose. So Tara, if people want to pick up a copy of the book, uh, what's the best way for them to do it or to learn more about uh, some of the other things you got going on? Well, I always encourage people to support independent bookstores. So you can definitely um, buy it or order it from your local independent bookstore. Um, The publisher is Arsenal Pulp Press in Vancouver. So you can look at their website and order it through them directly if you like. But I hear that Indigo placed a big order. So you should be able to find it just about anywhere. Terrific. Uh, So yeah, encourage everybody to check it out. We'll put some links in the show notes below too. Uh, So again, Congratulations on the release, Tara. Uh, I know it was a, a long process for you, but uh, a wonderful final product. So uh, again, Holden after and before love letter for a son lost to overdose. Tara McGuire, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I really appreciate your questions and uh, your attention, John. So there you have it. My conversation with Tara McGuire. 
I thank her for her time. Again, Holden after and before love letter for her son lost to overdose. Now let's get to this week's historical headline of the week, which this week comes from the Vancouver Daily Sun from April 28th, 1921, Death of Dope. In the early 1920s in Vancouver, there were significant concerns on the part of police and political leaders about opium and opium dens within Vancouver. And the Death of Dope article profiles some of the efforts to eliminate these opium dens through criminalization and through aggressive policing of these spaces. This article is just one of many that you can see through the spring of 1921, where the Vancouver Daily Sun is demonizing individuals who use opium and those who are facilitating opium dens. And there's a great moral panic that exists around these spaces. What does it mean? Uh, The damage that is done to communities, the harm for those who are using these spaces. And oftentimes it gets framed through a racial lens because a lot of these spaces were in Chinatown in Vancouver. So there's a a, a racial element to it where those who are being demonized are often Chinese Canadians. And the reality is that what you see through these articles is an othering of those individuals who are using opium. And that is not dissimilar to the way people talk about the downtown east side in Vancouver today which is high levels of drug use. There's a significant othering of individuals who live there and who are going through substance use disorders, who are experiencing homelessness. And there are echoes to the moral panic of the 1920s to now. And that moralizing and policing did not eradicate the issues in the 1920s. There are many studies out there and experts who would argue that uh, a new approach is needed in the 2020s. And one way to start is to humanize people in that community and around the country who are experiencing substance use disorders. And it's through stories like Holden's that Tara shared with us. Uh, That's one way to start that process. So with that, thank you for listening this week, everybody. Please subscribe wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us the likes, ratings, and comments. Uh, That helps us grow the show. If you want to let us know what you want to hear, what's oldest news at gmail.com. We'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old as News.